Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, I had a chance to catch up with the author of a new book that makes a compelling argument for the substantial deprivatization of the Internet. In Internet for the People, the Fight for Our Digital Future, Ben Tarnoff says to create a more democratic and equitable future, we need to diminish the role of the market in the future of the web and reduce the power of the profit motive to define our online experience. Here's Ben. My name is Ben Tarnoff. I'm the author of a new book called Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. Uh, I'm also a tech worker, and I also help run a magazine called Logic. You start this book at the bottom of the ocean. Why do you start there? (laughs) Yeah, so we open Among the Eels, which is the name of the preface, and we're looking at Morea, which is an undersea fiber optic cable that runs across the Atlantic Ocean. And I wanted to open somewhere strange because i think the thing with the internet is that we all assume that we know what it is because it's such a big part of our lives and indeed increasingly a big part of our public conversation but when one scratches the surface and digs down a bit deeper it turns out that the internet is much weirder and more complex than we would assume so i didn't want anyone to take anything for granted i wanted to plunge people into a place that felt unfamiliar to try to denaturalize the internet as a way of opening into its history. In this introduction, you not only kind of take us through the history of the emergence of the internet, uh, and in particular, the role of the US government through both ARPA and DARPA, and then also ultimately uh, the National Science Foundation. Um, but you also present your thesis, which is that the internet's privatization is ultimately a bad thing or a a necessary precondition for a lot of the problems that we consider in the tech lash today. Yeah. So as you point out, the book is mostly a history, but it's a history with a polemical core, which is that the story of how the internet was privatized, which is to say how a network and a technology that emerged through decades of public management at the cost of billions of dollars of public money, how this network and technology was turned over to the private sector, how the profit motive was programmed, if you like, into every layer of this network, that this story of privatization, which is complex, which has different phases and composed of different interventions, nonetheless lays the foundation for the various problems that plague the modern internet. And these problems, of course, have come to greater public attention through the so-called tech clash of recent years. So the main argument here is that the tech clash is nothing if not a belated reckoning with the legacies of privatization. So you say that, you know, naturally uh, industry insisted uh, that the Internet's privatization was a precondition for its popularization, this idea that it was really the only option that we had to privatize things in order to take it to the masses. But you you call this a false choice. Why? Well, I think it helps in trying to answer that question to frame the history of the internet in the early 90s a bit for us, which is by the early 1990s, the internet is still a federally managed system. 
but it now is under the control of the National Science Foundation rather than the Pentagon. So it's a civilian network. It's used primarily by academic researchers who are accessing it from university campuses all across the country. But the thing with the internet in the early 90s is that increasingly more and more people want to get online. The World Wide Web appears in the early 90s, the first graphical web browsers, Netscape Navigator being the most popular, appear. And this makes the internet more appealing, richer, more interactive, a bit closer to the internet that we know today. So in sum, more and more people want to get on the internet. And the National Science Foundation determines that they're going to privatize the network sooner than expected. So crucially, privatization was the plan all along. The federal government at no stage had any intention of running the internet indefinitely. But the question was when? When was the internet going to be privatized? And also, how was the internet going to be privatized? What would be the terms of the transition? Briefly, what happens is a very fast and very extreme form of privatization. And this is, as you pointed out, argued for by telecom lobbyists who, as you might imagine, have a lot to gain from a particularly extreme form of privatization that ensures a total corporate dictatorship over the infrastructure of the internet. This is presented by telecom lobbyists as inevitable. In other words, the only way to popularize the medium was to put it under full private sector control. And in the book, I argue that this was, in fact, a false choice. And there were a number of proposals at the time that would have popularized the internet without entirely privatizing it. There's one proposal in particular that I point to by Senator Daniel Inouye, who introduces a Senate bill that would have reserved up to 20% of telecom capacity for public uses. This capacity would have been provided free of cost to qualifying institutions like libraries that serve the public, and a funding stream would have been provided to these organizations to develop their own content and programming. The major model here was the model of public media. If you think about radio and television, we've always reserved a portion of the spectrum for non-commercial uses. Admittedly, public media in the United States is much weaker than it is in other advanced capitalist countries. But nonetheless, there's a precedent here of public media that figures like Inoue and a handful of other activists at the time could point to. Of course, as we know, telecom lobbying defeats that proposal and extreme privatization takes hold. But nonetheless, there were alternatives. There were other paths that the internet could have taken. So in many ways, you kind of take us through the history of the internet then and the development of various applications and business models on top of it. Um, but you take a detour to sort of considerations around democracy and the way that the internet interacts with, with democracy. Um, you say the present order of things is not merely unfair. It's also fundamentally undemocratic and that what is at stake is nothing less than the possibility of democracy, a possibility that an internet organized by the profit motive precludes. Now, you know, a lot of folks um, who are listening to this podcast, of course, they know it's um, about the issue of relationship between technology and democracy. Why do you sort of see this in such stark terms? 
It's funny. You know, I try to avoid or I tried to avoid talking about democracy and capitalism in this book because, you know, when you write about the internet, there's a terrible scoping challenge. Like, where does the internet start? Where does it end? You know, and how do you write a relatively short book about the internet without writing about literally everything? Because the internet is entangled with literally everything. So I allowed myself, as you said, a brief detour to try to define some of these terms because they are important for my argument. They provide uh, much of the moral thrust, if you like, of the polemic. The passage that you quoted appears in particular when I'm discussing the severe inequalities in broadband access that exists within the United States. I could give you a litany of statistics on this, but just one. In 2018, Microsoft researchers found that more than 162 million Americans do not use the internet at broadband speeds. Now, that is nearly half the country. It's an astonishing number. And it has to do briefly with the fact that internet service is quite expensive in the United States and infrastructure is sorely underinvested in. So without going into excessive detail on why that's the case, although we could certainly go there if you like, what I want to argue in the book is that this is not merely an unfortunate thing. This is actually a deeply anti-democratic thing. And I define democracy as having basically two components, a component of self-rule and a component of collective rule. The self-rule component of democracy being access to the resources that you need to lead a self-determined life. The ability to rule yourself is predicated on access to certain things, let's say housing, healthcare, food, that enable you to actually live a life of your own determination. Internet access has become one of those essential preconditions of a self-determined life. People need it to apply for unemployment insurance. They need it to be able to work from home. Kids need it to be able to take classes from home. We saw how essential a broadband connection is in the early stages of the pandemic. Among the many layers of crisis that that pandemic illustrated for us, one of them was this crisis of broadband access. The other component of democracy that I talk about is collective self-rule, right? which is the ability to rule ourselves together. And we could gloss this more co concretely as the opportunity to participate in the decisions that affect you. And the ability to participate in those decisions is in fact how we secure the conditions of individual self-rule. Because of course, those conditions are about social choices of how certain resources are distributed. So people need to be able to participate in those choices to ensure that the resources are distributed in such a way that everyone has an opportunity to lead a self-determined life. So I apologize for that being a bit abstract, but I do try to ground it in the nitty gritty of the broadband crisis in the United States. I think you do try to make it a little more real when you get on then to what you see as a potentially alternative vision uh, for how the internet might look around community networks and, and much smaller uh, ISPs that aren't primarily motivated by profit. There have been collectives and cooperatives and, and various other ways to sort of provide internet access uh, for a long time. What do you think's new about your assessment of them as a potential alternative? Look, as you say, there are more than 900 so-called community networks across the United States. And just to define this 
term for our listeners, this refers to publicly owned and cooperatively owned broadband networks. So it could be owned by a municipality in uh, in the case of public ownership. For uh, cooperative ownership, what that means is it's owned by the users themselves. So there are, for instance, a number of so-called rural electric cooperatives in rural parts of the United States who have expanded into the provision of broadband access. Now, I could walk you through the the research on these networks, but suffice to say, they tend to offer much better service at much lower cost than the monopolistic giants like Comcast. In terms of my argument, though, what I'm interested in is not just like the consumer reports version of these networks of like, oh, yeah, these are better than the other, uh, you know, market actors, but rather to frame it in this somewhat more elevated discourse of democracy which is to say community networks point the way towards a more democratic arrangement of the pipes of the internet because they help satisfy those two components of democracy that I mentioned earlier. On the one hand, because they're able to offer better service at lower cost, because profit maximization is not their sole priority, because they are often motivated by social goals such as universal connectivity, they are able to provide resources that people depend on in order to lead a self-determined life much more effectively than their corporate counterparts. In terms of the second component, because of these alternative ownership models, they are also able to enable people to participate in decisions around how infrastructure is going to be deployed locally. Those cooperatively owned networks that I mentioned earlier these are democratically run organizations. In fact, in order to retain their federal tax exemption, they have to hold regular democratic elections for the board. So this gives members of communities opportunity to actually determine collectively, what's this network going to look like? What kind of technology is it going to use? Do we want to integrate it with the smart grid and so on? So these are decisions that are taken away from the executives and investors of Comcast and placed where they belong, which is with the people themselves. After you, you know, posit this potential alternative to the way we access the internet, you move up the stack um, and you take on the woes of the platforms, a number of different types of woes. But you also argue on drawing from folks like Tarleton Gillespie that platforms don't exist. What's so dishonest about the idea of platforms as that has nested in our imagination? Well, this is a point I hope is not too pedantic because I, I think it does have real political stakes, which is that platform is a term that, you know, originally referred to something fairly specific, which is a set of technical components that developers can build applications on top of, say, a set of APIs. But over time has been extended to mean basically any piece of software running on the internet. And the reason that this term has been extended um, so, so widely, and in my view, so irresponsibly is because it does work for the tech firms. It, as Tarleton's work shows, suggests values of openness, of neutrality, of being level, of even handed. And these metaphorical connotations of the platform fundamentally obscure and mystify the intimate role that these platforms play in ordering our online life. It's essentially a screen with which to hide their sovereignty. So I, in the book, present an alternative metaphor drawn from the work of 
scholar Jathan Sadowski, where I suggest thinking of these complex computational systems as online shopping malls, as the online equivalent of you know the the mall where many Americans spend much of their time. And I think the advantage here is that we can refocus our thinking on the idea of a corporate enclosure, one in which various different types of interactions are taking place, some of them social. If you grew up in the suburbs, you probably went to shopping malls to hang out with your friends. Some of them commercial, you might go to a shopping mall to buy some clothing, for instance. But nonetheless, within the walls of the online mall, all of these interactions are occasions for manufacturing data, that that is essentially the defining feature of the online mall, and that these these various uh, data streams that are emerging from these different types of interactions can be considered rents of a kind. Sadowski uses the term data rents. So if you think about malls, they're usually in the, in the rental business, you know, that they rent out spaces to different merchants in the mall. And the idea of extracting monetary rents, of course, exists online. You know, if you take an Uber ride, you're going to be charged a fee. But data rents is actually really where the money is it's because these companies have found various ways to monetize the immense quantities of data that they're able to manufacture within the walls of the online mall. I quite like the way that you blended this idea of uh, the online shopping mall as having sort of three elements, the sovereign, the middleman, the maker of, of network effects. Yeah. So I tried to identify some core signatures of the online mall because I acknowledge that, you know, online malls are quite complex. They're entangled with a set of legal, financial, political forces. They're quite different from one another. I mean, Uber as a complex computational system, let's say, is quite different than that of Facebook. So the question here is, can we come up with some common signatures that across this wide field of variation, nonetheless define a genus, let's say, that we can put um, kind of various instances under. And what I zeroed in on are these three characteristics, that on the one hand, it's a sovereign. It, it writes the rules for the interactions that are taking place within it. It is a middleman. It's the, the, the basis by which these interactions are enabled. It is the connector of different parties. And of course, it is the maker and uh, the beneficiary of network effects, that the more people that use uh, the system, the more valuable it becomes. And then the last signature, if you like, is, as we've discussed, online malls are manufacturers and monetizers of data. And that is probably their most critical function uh, when you think about how money is made. You talk about the online mall, the birth of the online mall, the rise of the cloud, the spread of the data imperative uh, as the vectors for uh, the deeper privatization of the internet. But then you get on uh, to this maybe more recent phenomenon of algorithmic management and of the machine, the network, essentially uh, telling real people what to do, uh, which seems to be the sort of direction of our economy. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there is, of course, a long history of computers and networks being used to coordinate work, 
right? I mean, I, I quote the work of the political economist Joan Greenbaum, who points out that, you know, when lands and WANs were first introduced, we'll, we'll test the age of your listeners here, <laughs> those of us who remember land parties, when these different kinds of networks were introduced in a corporate setting, it enabled companies to distribute labor more widely, and in particular, to move so-called back office functions out of the office and down the street, and then out of state, and then, of course, out of country. So I think it's important to place the latest developments in managing by algorithm, managing by network within this broader history. But of course, things have become much more sophisticated and frankly, more dystopian. There's a lot of great work on the subject of algorithmic management, in particular of, of gig workers like Uber and Lyft drivers. But of course, we can also locate forms of algorithmic management within Amazon warehouses, you know, within the world of uh, financial workers. You know, there's various forms of uh, surveillance and control that is affected via software. Uh, and it exists in almost every sector, although there are, there's, of course, the cutting edge. And, and, you know, Uber is probably a good place to look at for that. You reference the shadow workforce, the human cloud of employees that these systems are able to bring together. Um, and then the notion of predatory inclusion, the reference to Tressie McMillan Cottom. I don't know, where do you see this, this all uh, kind of headed? If some of the interventions that aren't, um, you, that you mentioned in your book aren't enacted, you know, how far does this sort of dystopian direction take us? Well, the major development that's occurred since I wrote this book is the so-called market correction in tech. And I think that's something that's interesting to reflect on in terms of what it means for the next chapter of this story. You know, I mean, it is mostly affected unprofitable firms, but there has been, you know, a slowdown in, in hiring. Even just today, Apple said that it was going to be slowing down its hiring. So, so even very profitable tech firms are feeling the crunch of a, of a, frankly tightening monetary conditions, a gloomier economic outlook. So the question is beyond the, the kind of obvious consequences, like, you know, a bunch of firms that won't be able to secure funding anymore will, go out of business. Aside from that, what will it mean for this next chapter of the privatization of the internet, which is a process that kind of continues and tries to find new forms? Certainly, Web3 and crypto and NFTs was one proposal for how to continue that privatization story, if you like. It was one proposed kind of next chapter um, that has seemed less feasible in in tightening monetary conditions. Facebook, for what it's worth, certainly sees virtual reality as the next chapter uh, and has put a fair bit of money into trying to make that happen. Although, once again, the gloomier economic outlook and its falling share price means that it can afford to, to spend a lot less money than it has on uh on VR. So I, I don't presume to make any predictions, but I'm just kind of giving us the map of the territory. I think, you know, the next few years um, are just going to look different for, for tech. We're, we're very much out of the, what I call the Baroque phase in the book of sky high valuations, just endless amounts of funny money, um, investors chasing 
absurdly unprofitable firms like Uber in the hopes of cashing in on the next Google. That was the paradigm for a long time, and we're, we're suddenly out of it. So by chapter nine, you're you know trying to think about um, reform. You're beginning to kind of introduce um, you know maybe some alternative ideas about the way things might might be organized. But you find, uh, I guess, most of the major critics who are in power, um, both lawmakers uh, who you say you know provided the soundtrack of applause to the privatization of the internet, and still do so. I think even at most Capitol Hill hearings, they all start off with some reverence for the extraordinary things that these tech firms have done to enable our lives in different ways. But you know, you even kind of, I think, chide folks like Lena Khan and uh, the the new Brandeisians um, for not being far-reaching enough in their reformist perspective. Yeah. So my approach to anti-monopoly in this book is is one of of critical support and and of sympathy. Uh, I think that the anti-monopoly toolkit is indispensable for curbing the power of these firms, for shrinking their footprint. Um, and, and to that end, I see myself as a fellow traveler to some extent within the anti-monopoly project. Where I part ways with the anti-monopoly folks is in our diagnosis of what the problem is. For them, the problem is that the markets of the internet are too consolidated. And the solution is to make them more competitive, or at least to have what they call fair competition. To my mind, the problem is not that markets are too consolidated. The problem is the market itself. And I don't think that making markets more competitive would do very much to solve the deeper problems of the internet. I'll give you an example. One of the problems that has occupied enormous public attention, maybe maybe the, the problem that is, is number one in terms of people's awareness of problems with tech is Facebook's proliferation of right-wing propaganda, of so-called myths or disinformation, of bigotry, and so on. The reason that Facebook is a proliferator of these types of content is because it was built from the ground up to maximize user engagement. There's been ample reporting that has substantiated that link. Research within Facebook has substantiated that link. Filtering algorithms are designed to favor this type of provocative, incendiary content in order to maximize user engagement, which, as we know, is imperative for Facebook's business model, which is to try to manufacture as much data as possible in order to monetize it through the sale of so-called targeted advertising. Okay. This imperative to maximize user engagement at all costs came out of an era of relative competition. It came out of an era when Facebook was a smaller company, a startup even. It was trying to grow as fast as possible, to grab market share as fast as possible. It came out of an era of, of competition, in other words. So the idea that, just to take this example, simply by increasing competition, we're going to automatically guarantee better social outcomes I think is misplaced. I don't think a world in which we have a dozen Facebooks does very much about the problem of right-wing propaganda proliferating on the internet, to take one example. So it's here you suggest there's another alternative, deprivatization. And you use what I think of as one of the better visual metaphors of the book, this idea of the birds in the food court. 
Yeah. So if we extend the metaphor of the online mall, we could think about what might be required to break the walls of the enclosure and to see the enclosure with all manners of invasive species. If you look at photographs of so-called dead malls, they often become thriving ecosystems. Not always, but they can. So that's a metaphor that I provide as a as a way forward. In terms of what that means briefly, I think there's there are two steps. The first is that we need to shrink the footprint of the online malls. And this is where the anti-monopoly toolkit can be quite useful. This means doing things like uh, breaking up the firms, banning mergers and acquisitions, enforcing interoperability, a number of things that the new Brandesian folks have been advocating for for a while. I think these would be very positive steps. But the second component, and this is probably where the new Brandesians would disagree, is that I think we also need to develop publicly and cooperatively owned alternatives that encode the practices of democratic control into their everyday operations that represent true alternatives to the corporate giants, not just smaller or more entrepreneurial versions of them, and then use public policy tools to try to make these alternatives more robust, more accessible, and more of a threat with the goal of having them eventually lay claim to the space that the online malls formerly occupied. You end the book with this thought of future nostalgia. And as I understand it, you're trying to kind of find an intellectual space that maybe moves on from the sort of, I guess, past nostalgia that we may have for the internet before it was so successfully privatized. So you move on to this idea of future nostalgia. Let me let, me let you explain it. What is future nostalgia? Well, Future Nostalgia is, first of all, of course, an album by Dua Lipa. Shout out to Dua Lipa. Uh, but it's a, you know, it's an idea that I tried to develop because I wanted to think about what are the political uses of nostalgia? You know, there's a lot of nostalgia these days for earlier eras of the internet. You know, there's a whole kind of aesthetic movement online about making your website look like GeoCities in the 90s. I suspect in some cases, uh, it's found fans among people who actually weren't old enough to remember GeoCities. <laughs> but in any case, internet nostalgia, when one looks at the history of the internet, is actually a constant. You have people who are quite nostalgic for earlier eras of the internet in every era of the internet, which is was surprising to me that you could feel nostalgia for, say, the internet of 1986, but in fact, people did. So this is a constant. My goal here was not to try to make people feel ridiculous for feeling nostalgic, because I have my own nostalgias from my own era of the internet. It's inevitable. But rather to think about how might we use some of that effective force and channel it, if it's possible to do so, towards a political project. I talk in this final chapter a bit about E.P. Thompson's magisterial work, The Making of the English Working Class. And in it, he has a discussion of the Luddites, who, of course, were the textile workers who smashed the machines that threatened to displace them. And Thompson talks about how the Luddites looked backward in order to look forward, that they posited a imagined past, uh, a better past, one based on moral economy and a, and a more communal spirit of living, and articulated a great nostalgia for this past, which of course, never existed, but did so in order to develop a vision of the future 
in which technology could be subordinated to human need. In other words, their imagined past became a set of resources with which they could imagine and articulate and struggle for a better future. So in this final chapter, I draw on that idea and I suggest what if instead of feeling nostalgic for previous eras of the internet, what if we managed to find a way to feel nostalgia for all of the possible futures that the internet could have had, all of those missed opportunities, those, those forks not taken? Like, for instance, in our early part of our discussion, that Daniel Inouye idea that was floated in the 1990s, which was known as the public lane on the information superhighway. Would it be possible to feel nostalgia for those foreclosed futures of the internet and somehow then to use that nostalgia to imagine and to struggle for a better future that could actually take place? Do you imagine that sabotage might be necessary for us to reach that imagined future? Well, elsewhere I've written about Luddism, actually. It's not something I uh, wanted to dwell on too much in the book. Luddism is actually having quite a moment. Uh, <laughs> there are a number of uh, interesting writers these days on the left who are thinking about the legacy of the Luddites. Certainly. I mean, look, I, I follow David Noble here, and his point is that the Luddites were acute technological thinkers. They understood quite clearly what kind of world these new machines were creating. And they were not against machines in the abstract because machines don't exist in the abstract. They were against very specific technological interventions that were going to cause them and their families to starve, which is indeed what happened. So I think the Luddites are invaluable as a, as a precedent, as a resource, as teachers. We're talking in a moment, it's the summer of 2022, uh, the midterm cycle is about to heat up. Um, we're going into, you know, another election cycle and it's shaky whether even the anti-monopoly project that you talk about in the book will come through with the passage of any legislation in this particular cycle or not. Most other kind of angles on, on tech policy reform in the U.S. appear to be in a, in a kind of paralyzed state on some level. What do you think may actually happen with regard to this agenda or direction or uh, impetus that you lay out here in the book? Do you see the forces coming together to push forward in a direction that you would prefer, or what do you make of it? Well, again, I'd be reluctant to make any firm predictions, but I think you know, as regards the anti-monopoly project, there are these two bills in the Senate that have been voted out of committee, and I think it's a question whether those move forward. I mean, look, on the one hand, there is a larger and somewhat bipartisan, I don't want to use the word consensus, but understanding of the problems that are posed by big tech firms. And that, that's a genuinely new phenomenon. It didn't exist, you know, five years ago. And it's a testament to the work of figures like, like Khan. On the other hand, there are some real challenges in pushing that agenda through, you know, from both sides. The Republicans will often um, be blamed here, but the Democratic Party, you know, historically and at present has deep links to Silicon Valley. You know, there are some um, pretty close alliances here. Maybe they're a little less close than they were during the Obama White House, but nonetheless, there are constraints 
on public policymaking here that are imposed by considerations of donors and different capital interests of the kind that that uh, constrict and frankly dictate policy on any number of subjects, uh, the internet not not alone. I think it's you know in terms of what I would like to see forward and how optimistic I am about <laughs> a project to deprivatize the internet. Look, I mean, I I say in the book quite clearly, you're not going to get anywhere if, unless you have a social movement. You know, there were all sorts of great proposals, great ideas like the Inoue proposal back in the '90s. The reason that these ideas could not become active, become a material force in history, if you like, is because there weren't masses of people mobilized behind them. That's ultimately what's required. I'm not so ridiculous as to imagine that we're going to have a social movement whose only goal is to remake the internet. And I, I wouldn't want that. I mean, there are other issues <laughs> that demand our attention, probably more urgently than the question of how to deprivatize the internet. But what I would say is the internet is connected to every issue because it's entangled with every facet of our life. So I hope that as organizers say in the climate justice movement or in, in whatever movement, as they come up against the internet, as they encounter the internet, which they inevitably will, that they can draw potentially on some of the ideas in this book in order to come to a strategic approach that is consistent with the rest of their politics. That if you're on the left, if you have a social democratic or a socialist orientation, if you have a critique of capitalism and you're starting to think about the internet, anti-monopoly is actually not the best approach. It's actually not the approach that's most consistent with your tradition. And there are alternatives that are possible. With a couple of minutes we have left, you get on to you know, ideas around decentralization and the idea of potentially uh, decentralized social media networks and other uh, more decentralized services on the web. Uh, nowhere in the book is there a mention of blockchain, of Web3, of cryptocurrency. <laughs> uh, is that on purpose? You know, I find Web3 just very boring. Like it's just, you know, you, as a writer, you have to write about things that interest you and it just it doesn't really. My view on blockchain, which I think will satisfy no one, is that the technology is actually kind of interesting, but that crypto is a very bad implementation of it. So I, let's say, am, am holding out the possibility that there will be interesting applications of blockchain somewhere down the road. I mean, the original white paper is interesting, but what blockchain is now is like a climate killing casino, right? It's like this indefensible, you know, obscene use of energy resources in order to produce this speculative asset. Uh, which in turn actually ruins a lot of people's lives. And Web3 essentially being a kind of VC-motivated rebranding of, of crypto and associated abstractions like tokens in order to generate some payouts for Mark Andreessen and friends. I, I don't think any of this has any real like social value, but blockchain, could it produce something interesting in 10 years? Maybe, but there'd have to be a different set of people working on it, frankly. Last question. Um you know, the book is focused for the most part on the U.S. and you explain to the reader why you've made that choice. Uh, but is there anywhere else in the world that you look to as uh, potentially delivering on the vision that you lay out here? I mean, a lot of folks uh, think the EU is creating a kind of very alternative version of uh, Internet and tech governance. Um, does that go enough far enough for you or is there someplace else in the world that you admire? 
Well, the Europeans, you know, they have a very kind of liberal technocratic model of governance, which appeals to certain people in the United States, um, no doubt. To me, it's not particularly inspiring. First, enforcement is terrible. I mean, enforcement of GDPR has been kind of a joke. And there is this, you know, deeper problem here, which is it's hard to discipline capital when your societies depend on its reproduction, <laughs> right? So this isn't just a tech policy thing. This is just, frankly, the, the constraints, the challenges of a capitalist state. Uh, you know, the other thing about European style regulation is that it's, it's constructed around the abstractions of the individual, the kind of personal data subject who is being bestowed with certain rights. And the reality is that it's very difficult in practice to exercise these rights. You know, data portability under GDPR is a great example. Sure, I can request a bunch of data in some incomprehensible format from Facebook, but where am I going to put it? Like, if I don't have anywhere to put it, it's not portable. This, I think, is this kind of excessively uh, personalized and kind of liberal technocratic view of what regulation should be. So I don't put a lot of faith in Brussels and the bureaucrats there. There are, of course, interesting experiments, you know, at the local level all over Europe. I mean, Helsinki has a free citywide Wi-Fi network um, that, you know, anyone can access anywhere in the city. And that's pretty cool. You know, that's, that's, you know, their experiments. Uh, of a similar kind in the United States. But so, you know, f for the most part, unfortunately, where I'm looking to for inspiration are local experiments. I wish it weren't so. I'm not a localist or a decentralist in an ideological way, but this is, these are the spaces, these are the cracks in the asphalt, so to speak, where people are able to do interesting things at the moment. Once again, the book is Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. Ben Tarnoff, thank you for talking to me today. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.